Hi everybody and welcome back to Ikragorama. I hope you all had a nice break and have enjoyed the summer. Today we are on location and out of the studio for the first time in Ikragorama history. We are live from the Atlantic Ocean and as always I am accompanied today by my partner in crime, Niamh Faulkner. Hi Niamh, how are you? Hey Ben, how's it going? I'm really really good. Um, really excited to be recording the podcast live and also in person for the first time. Yes. Hi Niva, how are you? <laughs> yes, hi Ben. <laughs> Let's check hands for a minute. <laughs> yeah, because we've been doing this whole time for season three, we've been doing it over Zoom. So yes. now we're actually in person, which is great. Exactly. And this is going to be a very special episode today, uh, actually a two-parter. And we are going to talk about the geophysical surveys at sea, uh, the geology of the Rockall Plateau and the geology under the Atlantic Ocean uh, with our guest today, who is uh, the chief scientist of our expedition here on the Celtic Explorer. And this is none other than Dr. Steve Jones from the University of Birmingham. So yeah, enjoy. This is Icragorama at Sea, the podcast about everything Irish geoscience with Ben Kuva and Neil Faulkner. And today our guests are Steve Jones and the team for the Paraclim Expedition. Hi Steve. Hiya. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So we are um, about the Celtic Explorer at the moment. We are um, on the ship, the, the legendary ship of the Marine Institute. And we are on a, on a science expedition called Poroclim. First of all, what does Poroclim stand for exactly? Well, the Por, P-O, that stands for porcupine. And the Ro, R-O, that stands for rock all. And the Klim is short for climate because our objectives are tied into past climate change. Yeah, we'll go into detail about that uh, in a few moments. Uh, but first, I'd like to maybe talk a bit about yourself and your background, because you're not a researcher um, in Ireland. You're actually based in the UK. Yeah. So um, let's talk a bit about um, what are a bit your background and your research interests at the moment. Yeah, well, as you say, I, I work at the University of Birmingham now, and I've been there for the past 10 years. Prior to that, actually, I was at um, Trinity College Dublin, so which is important for how I know about this this research ship. But I think, like like many people who are geologists or earth scientists, I didn't study that at school. I had wide interests, actually. I I did maths and physics and geography and music for my um, at college. But I was always interested. Uh, I was always interested in maps, fascinated, especially if the maps had bright colours on. And <laughs> as you know, geological maps have very bright colours. I like to look at the landscape and think, right, I know why that hill is there, or I understand how that island formed. So I always had that. And I decided to take a punt and change directions for my degree and, um, and, and do geology. I'm interested in how... Earth's deep interior affects its surface. Okay, so that could be by influencing ocean circulation or it could be by affecting climate change. 
So there have been, as you know, periods of natural climate change in the geological past. And at the moment, we humans are causing quite major changes to Earth's climate. But to understand how severe our modern changes are, we, we measure that by looking at past climate changes, really. If we understand natural past climate changes better, then we're going to be in better shape to think about what to do to uh, mitigate against what you know the damage we're doing to the planet at present. Yeah, I think it is really interesting. It is such a, a an essential part of, of geology as well as looking to the past to to um, to try and you know mitigate our current effects on on the climate. Did you mention what period of time we are looking at? Yeah, well, so if you wind the clock back to fifty five million years ago. So the dinosaurs have died out, that happened 65 million years ago, um, but mammals are only small scurrying creatures. Um, now, at this time period, and in this area of the, what, we, what is now the North Atlantic, two very interesting things happened. And the first was a huge outpouring of volcanic eruptions, and that's, we call that the North Atlantic Igneous Province. And the second thing was a period of severe global climate change, which we call the, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. So the big question geologists around the world are interested in solving is, are those two things connected? And that's really what Poroclim's trying to do. We're trying to collect data that will establish the degree to which the North Atlantic Igneous Province actually drove that Paleocene-Eocene climate climate change events or whether there were other factors involved. So tell us a bit more about the Pyroclim expedition. How did it come, how did it come to light? If you're going to do science you want to look at big questions and as I as I mentioned I mean it's, it's not just me who's interested in this there's a whole community of scientists and those are those include both what you might call paleoclimate scientists who study the PETM or the, the Paleocene Thermal Maximum we call that the PETM and they also include um, solid earth scientists, so volcanologists and um, geophysicists who study um, large igneous provinces. So it's well known actually that large igneous provinces and climate changes quite often coincide. It is one of the big questions in earth sciences. So I think, you know, when you're trying to design a, a major experiment, you need to tackle a big question. But for me, one of the problems is that the climate is often studied by paleoclimate scientists and the deep earth is often studied by tectonic people or geophysicists and it's quite rare to get someone who is really thinking about both when they're setting up an expedition. So I, that's what I was trying to do. I mean I've published some papers about both the PETM and about the um, North Atlantic Indies province. So I, I had that background, I thought that it was, I thought that this was a big question in earth science and so I, I, I wanted to try and put an experiment together um, to make some progress. And speaking of experiments, uh, why coming here in Ireland and do, the, uh, do this expedition with the Celtic Explorer and not a British ship? Well that's because having decided on the big question you then need to work out where to go to answer it and the place to go is here and we're actually in international waters right here, but the closest country is Ireland. 
Okay, so we're not too far outside Irish um, um, sovereign, sovereign uh, marine territory. So it made sense to go to Ireland. And also, I have connections in Ireland, of course, because working at Trinity College Dublin for six, six years. So I've sailed on the Celtic Explorer before. I know she's a great vessel and capable of doing what we needed to do. Yeah, it's a really, really, really good ship. And um, yeah, handy that you had already an Irish link. And there's also links with um, other Irish institutions as well that were partnered with um, Dias as well for the cruise. And um, but also partnered with um, some Danish universities. So we've got um, Aarhus University as well as Geus, the, the Danish Geological Survey. How did you get them on board as well? Well, the Celtic Explorer has none of the specialist equipment that we need to measure Earth's deep crustal structure. Okay. Um, so I needed to have a partner who will be able to bring all that equipment. Okay, and I needed I needed ideally a partner that's a one-stop shop. There's quite a lot of equipment out there on the back deck, and it's much easier if you go to one partner and they will bring all of that. And what's more, that partner couldn't be Irish or British because of the way the funding works. So I was looking for a European partner, not Irish or British, who was a one-stop shop for the equipment. So that already narrows things down. Now, as it um, basically, the Danish group can supply all that. They fit that, 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 that criterion. And what's more, I'd already worked with my main collaborator, um, John Hopper. I'd been at sea with him before, so I hadn't actually worked with him on a project before, but I'd, um, I'd been at sea with him and I'd got on well with him. Um, and I thought, well, I can work with this guy. Um, so we started talking about it, and that was about three years ago, and now here we are. Nice. So it fully takes, does it take a whole full three years to prep for an expedition? So this, I've had this, I've had the inkling of this idea for much longer than, than three years, um, probably for about a decade. But um, the serious work on this has been, has been three years now. But that's actually quite short. You know, if you think about a marine, an international marine drilling expedition, like, um, like an, um, an IODP, um, an International Ocean Discovery Programme expedition, I mean, they take at least five years, sometimes more than a decade to set up. And, you know, if you think about a, a space-based expedition, <laughs> then they take decades. So, you know, three years is actually on the short time to get grant funding and set up an expedition. expedition. Um, you actually mentioned just, just before that the Celtic Explorer doesn't have uh, all the necessary equipment to, um, to explore the, the deep parts of the Earth. So wh what is this equipment exactly and what do we need to, uh, to explore the, the depth of the Earth? Yeah, so we, in this particular experiment, to get a, a record of volcanism, through geological time, we do that by measuring the thickness of oceanic crust. Okay, so that's the primary technical objective. Now, oceanic crust um, is maybe between, say, six kilometers up to ten, maybe even more kilometers thick. So we need a technique that sees into the earth down to those depths. And the technique that there is a standard and well-used technique by which we do that. It's called um, wide-angle seismic surveying okay and wide angle is the key here so to see deep you need 
a large horizontal distance between the source of the sound waves and the receiver of the sound waves. And the, the, the further apart the source and the receiver are, the deeper you will see into the Earth, the deeper those sound waves travel within the Earth. And we're talking about tens, maybe up to 100 kilometers distance between the source and receiver. So that, that sort of objective dictates how you go about making the measurements. So we need, that means that we need to have, um, you can't tow a 100 kilometer long um, array of sensors behind a boat, not in any practical way. So it means that we have to drop sensors onto the sea floor and then sail away from them. And the sensors are um, ocean bottom seismometers. So we have um, 28 of those on board, 27 of which are working. <laughs> and we've been dropping those, um, as you know, on the seabed. Um, and then we sail away from them and we sail towards them. And we, um, we, we produce sound waves and we, they get then measured um, on these ocean bottom seismometers. And we also, to um, get, I guess, get the, the, the near field um, seismic arrivals, we also tow a, a short streamer behind the boat, which is only a kilometer long. Um, and that helps resolve the shallow structure. So the, the, there are, beneath the seabed, there is a layer of, a thin layer of sediments that lies on top of the oceanic crust. And this, this streamer data will help us map that um, in detail. So we can resolve the deeper structure better. Yeah, so when, um, what we've been doing when, when running a seismic line is you, you run the line once and you drop all the instruments and you go back and you record all the data and then you run the line a final time and you do um, instrument recovery. So we've actually just finished, as of last night, we just finished our first line with recovery and I think safe to say it went, it went okay. Pretty smoothly, yeah, I would say. Uh, yeah, we had some delays. Um, <laughs> because of weather but we've got all the instruments back that's the first thing we put out 27 instruments and we've retrieved 27 instruments and we are just now beginning to download the data from those instruments but it's looking good so and importantly we surveyed right across the period of past climate change so we started surveying in late Cretaceous oceanic crust and we measured right through the Paleocene time, right across the time of the Paleocene-Eocene boundary and into early Eocene crust. So we should have, we should be able to recreate from this data set um, a record of volcanic activity right across this um, this time period of interest. Okay, that's interesting actually because how do you retrace the mm. volcanic activity? Yeah. at this time period like yeah. how can you deduce it mm -hmm. well it's it's very simple to state that i mean the the, mm. the the physical theory behind it is slightly complicated but it's basically we need to measure oceanic crustal thickness and in almost everywhere in the world oceanic crust gives a direct measure of the of the temperature that earth's mantle had at the time the crust was formed. Okay, so if we measure crustal thickness, there's basically a very simple equation that translates that directly into past mantle temperature. And it's the temperature of the mantle beneath this whole area of the North Atlantic that was controlling the, the, the volcanic productivity, basically. So right. if we know if we know that that, that, that temperature time um, function, I guess, that history then we can use that to test models for how these large igneous provinces are formed 
and you know we're in a better shape to translate that into um, greenhouse gas emissions as well over time. So um, tell me a bit more about the large igneous provinces themselves. Yeah. I mean, like, what exactly are they? Uh, are they? Do they exist uh, in our current time? Well, it depends. As with many things, it depends how you define them. So. Arguably, the North Atlantic Igneous Province does still exist because the the, the main theory for um, how these things form is is unusually hot upwelling um, convection currents within Earth's mantle, and the mantle plume that is thought to have formed these ancient this ancient period of volcanism is now presently sitting right beneath Iceland. Okay, so it's a smoking gun. So. Some definitions of large igneous provinces would include the modern, like Iceland, but others others only include only include the past. But that's just a question of semantics, really. Um, but having said that, the real unusually high burst of volcanic activity that happened 55 million years ago, we theorise that that was the the birth or the initiation of the the Iceland mantle plume convection system. Um, and no, nothing like that is happening at present. Mm, okay. So, um, and can we see the um, any evidence of the uh, North Atlantic Igneous Province on land, or is everything under the Atlantic? We can now. Most of it is under the Atlantic, but there are a few tips of icebergs. Um, and um, in Ireland, we have some very famous ones. The so Giant's Causeway mm-hmm. was. Um, part of the the, the early um, volcanic activity. It, it precedes the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, so it was maybe the very, um, the initial stages of this um, this province getting going. Also, um, there are three main volcanic centres in Ireland. There's Carlingford, Schlieffgullion, and the, the Mourne Mountains. Been there. Yeah, <laughs> very beautiful. And similar um, locations in Scotland that you might have been to. So the Sky, the Cullen, the Black Cullen in Sky, um, are these is, is the roots of an ancient volcano of this age? Mull, Rum, Ardnam Merkin, um, quite a lot of places um, in northwestern Scotland. Arran, um, there are igneous dikes that cross much of northern um, England and Scotland and um, Ireland, and not just um, um, Ireland and Britain. Um, you know, the, the, the Faroes, looking further afield, across to Greenland lot of igneous um, rocks in eastern Greenland and even some in western Greenland. Disco Island. Have you been to Disco Island then? No, but I would love to. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about Disco Island a lot during this cruise. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, my new passion is to go to. Yeah, maybe maybe next time our our location um, for a podcast will be from Disco Island. Although I fear we might have to be we will be on the run from polar bears there. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about the rest of the challenges that we had because we actually we couldn't leave uh, Galway right away because of a storm uh, and there have been a few delays. So can you tell us a little bit about that uh, and also uh, what sort of contingency plans do we have when this happens? You know, like yeah. how, how many plan A, plan B, plan C do you have um, in, this, in this kind of situation? Yeah, so now we're working in the northeastern Atlantic here, and it's the weather can be bad, and it's changeable and unpredictable. 
So you've just got to accept if you're going to come to this part of the world, there'll be a probably be a, a, a significant amount of weather downtime, and you'll have to think on your feet because these weather systems come through. They can come through fast, and they can change in terms of you know the, the, the weather forecast. You've just got to accept that. And as you said, when we arrived in Galway, we were hoping to start mobilising on the 5th of May and then leave on the afternoon of the 6th. Um, the afternoon of the 6th came, there was a massive storm, a massive weather system sitting out just west of Ireland. And, you know, the captain, and no sensible captain would leave harbour and just sail into that, especially with the amount of equipment we've got stacked on the back deck. So we sat in, 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 in dock in Galway for several days. I think we lost three days right there at the start, maybe three or four days. Yeah, so we arrived in the work area late. We managed to deploy all our um, ocean bottom seismometers. Then another storm hit and we had to wait again. So we're quite well down on time at the moment. In the best case scenario, we could have collected a lot more data. But, you know, you always have to write contingency plans into these things. And so actually in the original, as part of the original planning, I came up with a list of priorities, you know. So we went to the most important science target first, and that's the one we've now just, just finished um, acquiring. And then now we're going to the second target on the list, and I think that's all we'll have time to do. But we did have third and fourth and fifth targets as well. And, I mean, you, this is the first time you guys have been on board a ship, but you'll probably have seen me sometimes looking quite happy and relaxed and at sometimes looking miserable and with a tendency to bang my head against the desk <laughs> thinking <laughs> urgently typing into my computer to come up with new coordinates you know you just have to think on your feet here and that's part of the job of being a chief scientist at sea with a logistically complicated expedition you have a plan but you've got to be prepared at any moment to tear it up and write another plan Yes, I mean, like, safety is obviously, safety of the crew, safety of the ship mm. is obviously number one priority. And, and sadly, there have been some mornings where we get our, our weather report and you see these massive red yeah. cells coming towards us. So, you know, that we have to yeah. <laughs> have to slightly change our plans. Yeah. Well, the way it works is, of um, you know, I'm the chief scientist and I've got the science program in my mind and I have to work closely with the captain. He's in overall control. He's got the legal responsibility for all of our safety. And so every morning and every evening, we go up to the bridge and look at the weather forecast. And I say, well, this is what we'd like to do. And he says, well, this is what we can do. <laughs> and we go from there. And we go from there. <laughs> we are actually collecting now additional types of data. So yeah. what, what other kind of data are we... Afraid? Well, at the moment, we're, we're filling time because we can't go. This is a case in point of what we just said. <laughs> at the moment, I would like to be heading south to the second work area, but we can't because right now in the second work area, <laughs> there are eight meter high waves. So um, we have to, we're basically treading water. But of course, with a, such an expensive um, research platform as a, you know, it costs a lot of money to operate every day. Um, when we tread water, we, we don't just do nothing. We try and collect other sorts of data that would have less priority by themselves, but still have value. So right now, we are actually pretty much directly over oceanic crust of Paleocene-Eocene boundary age. And we're just going backwards and forwards, making a very detailed um, 
survey of the depth of the seabed and the magnetic anomaly pattern, which is what you know, allows us to actually date the, ocean, um, the, the, the age of the oceanic floor. So we're collecting useful information. Okay? We might not necessarily have come out here just to collect that data, but given that we are out here, it's certainly useful data to collect. I have a last question, which mm -hmm. is, what is one of the, the special things about the Celtic Explorer that you like specifically or that you really enjoy here? It's, it's how helpful the crew are. You know, um, I've been on research boats from, I think, four different countries, and the Celtic Explorer, the setup they have here in Ireland is, is, the, is the best. So, um, so the guys up on the bridge and the guys down the deck couldn't be more helpful. And they're really interested in the science as well. You know, you've probably been asked by people, oh, well, what are you doing here? What are we, why are we doing this survey? The guys are really interested and they couldn't be more helpful to try and um, let you achieve what you want. Yeah, that definitely makes a, a huge difference mm. as well, that they're yeah. fully, fully on board, yeah. literally and metaphorically, <laughs> um, <laughs> with, with helping us and helping us r you know, run as smoothly as possible. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're all they're you know such they're all such a fun group as well, which yeah. you know makes makes your life you know you're floating on a boat for twenty five days. You mm. want to have a bit of fun as well and enjoy, enjoy work and you know make it easy as you're going on, and, and they've been fantastic. Totally. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us on the podcast. Um, where can people reach you on social media or on the internet? Or people can't reach me on social media because <laughs> I am a I am a dedicated Twitter phobe or I don't know what the I, I don't I'm not on Twitter I'm not on Instagram I'm afraid I'm not someone who really enjoys spending my time looking at social media you can you can follow the crews um, we have social media accounts that you guys are helping to run you can email me um, at my work email address which you can find online through my profile on Birmingham or on the Poroclum account well, thank you, Steve, very much uh, for uh, letting us uh, come on the cruise and, um, and helping you with outreach. And actually, we're going to talk about outreach in a moment with Matt and Erica. So stay tuned. Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. And we're back. So before the break, um, we were talking with Steve about uh, the Poroclim expedition and everything that it encompasses, really. Um, but now we are with two different people. Yeah, here with us, we have two of our fellow early career researchers. We have two of our early career researchers with us who are also part of the outreach team with myself and Ben. Um, so we have Matt and Erica. So, well, first of all, welcome. It's great to, to have you on Icragorama. Uh, is this your first time on the podcast? It is. Yep, same for me. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, yeah, if you guys want to just give yourselves a little bit of an introduction. Um, so I'm Matthew. Uh, I am a PhD student at the University of Birmingham in the UK. I'm actually one of Steve Jones's PhD students, and that's how I'm involved in this project. And I am Erica. I am a postgraduate student at Trinity College Dublin, originally from Florida, and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so um, 
Uh, Matt, you're from England, as you said, but Erica, you are part of ICRAG, so yes. um, you're in Trinity College. Can you tell us a bit what is your, your PhD about? So I study cold water corals in, off the coast of Ireland, and we are looking at how anthropogenic stressors and climate change affects their skeletal structure and their biomineralization. Right, and you, Matt? Um, so my research focuses on the North Atlantic and particularly the climate over the last sort of 60 million years. Um, so yeah, feeds into the, the research aims of this cruise. Yeah, so you've got to make sure we've got some nice data for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, my project is slightly contingent on the job we do at sea. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, the data is mainly for you. <laughs> In general, the subjects are mainly about marine science, um, except for you, Neve. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of a, a bit of an outlier on <laughs> in terms of this. I sort of uh, came to this cruise more looking towards the uh, science communication end of it. That's why all of us are here, really. Um, we're mainly for science communication and outreach and really giving this expedition a bit more visibility. Um, so maybe, Erica, you can tell us a bit about uh, what is your role on the Proclim expedition? Why you? Why did you um, apply for it? And um, why do you think you were chosen as a, a member <laughs> of the crew? Oh gosh, um, sure. So the role that I play for outreach on the cruise, I do a lot of the social media posting along with Neve. We post on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and a lot of sharing blog posts and photography from the trip. Um, I know that Matt and Ben are putting together some videos as well. And I applied for this because I really wanted to go on a research cruise and, and get a feel for it because I do study cold water corals. So hopefully I will have my own research cruise in the future. I believe I was selected from what Steve told me because of my oceanography background from my master's degree. So I'm very comfortable with things in the ocean. What was your master's on? Other than being in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're come to that. We're yeah. come to that. <laughs> I did my master's at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I studied how hurricanes affect the ocean surface. So we looked at sea surface temperature, wind speed, and then we did a little mixed layer depth, all from satellite imagery in the Gulf of Mexico and the Western Caribbean Sea. Matt, what about yourself? What... what um what have you brought to the table outreach-wise in terms of the Paraclim expedition? And I, mean, I guess we probably know why you were chosen, because you said it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So I, I was one of the first... You chose us. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I was one of the first PhD students on the list uh, because of my relationship with Steve, him being my supervisor. Um, in terms of what I bring, I, I like cameras, I like filming things and taking photos, and I like making little videos. So a sort of hobby of mine has turned out to be quite a useful thing for this this expedition allowing us to make short format videos documenting life at sea the science we're doing and that kind of stuff yeah we've actually seen before the beginning of the cruise some of your um uh, science communication cartoons yes uh, yeah i also draw cartoons as well um <laughs> i i've started my phd in october uh, 2020 and it, it struck me that this PhD will probably fly by and I'll be at the end of it before I know it and I wanted to do something to sort of document not necessarily the science but the experience of doing a PhD 
and I started drawing cartoons, mainly featuring my dog Zoe. Um, and they're, they're a yeah, she is very cute. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're just a way of of me recording my my experience really. I think also uh, you sort of downplayed yourself a little bit there, saying you like cameras. You brought a full rig with you. You've got, you know, your drone operator. You've got your your digital camera. You've done all the editing for the photos as well. You you know the got, time lapse. The time lapses. Yeah, you've got that weird angled camera thingy, which I can't remember the name of. DJI Osmo Pocket. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm mainly downplaying it because I'm a massive, massive tech nerd. That's that's <laughs> what I'm trying to downplay. It shows in your photos. Yeah. <laughs> Where can we see all of the, um, the outreach um, output that we're all doing? So, probably a good place to start is our website, which is poroclim.org. And there you'll find links to all of our social media accounts, a list of the science crew and the various universities across Europe that they're from. Um, but we've got a Twitter, we've got Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. So um, head to the website and, and follow the links from there. Yeah. Erica, do you know the, the Twitter handles for the... Um... The Twitter handle is actually Klimporo. So if you at Klimporo Twitter. for Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are both Poro Klim. Nice. So, um, yeah... Erica, we, together with Neve, you've been uh, working a lot with Legos, actually, and taking <laughs> pictures of, of Legos and posting them on, on social media. So um, could you maybe explain to us a little bit why taking this, this um, interesting angle? And um, yeah. Eric and I were discussing it in the office. And we were both like, oh, yeah, we'll plan a whim. And then I was like, oh, I, I really, really, really want to do this. And so I, being the nerd that I am, created a, a full kind of um, pitch deck and I was trying to think of all these different ways that we could in, um, involve different audiences and stuff like that and um, I think Lego is a great way to do it because it's a, a you know a world recognizable figurine um, you also get to play with the, the height ratios and, and um, you know it's kind of little Lego big big ship and um, yeah, it's it kind of it's great for kids and it's great for for. Um, and they're just cute, well. aren't they? Yeah, they're really you cute, know? and you can you can edit them. And and when I suggested this to Erica, she jumped immediately on board. And then yeah, you really ran with it, didn't you? Um, yeah. After Neve mentioned it to me, I did a little search online to see if there were any other people that were using Legos for science outreach in any way. And we came across Stacy Phillips on Twitter, and she was kind enough to have a Zoom meeting with us and give us a few tips and tricks on how to get the best shots for them and how we can position them the best way. Uh, Blue Tack is definitely our best friend. We would have had a few Legos go overboard by now without yeah, it. That was such a good <laughs> shout. It was, yeah, her first. She said it was the simplest but most important thing, and that, yeah, we definitely would have had some uh, uh, L. Oh, bees? Lego, Lego overboard. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, and I think I might even continue doing it into my PhD now. Get a little lab coat and some goggles or something and play around with corals and Legos. Do you think you actually managed to reach um, larger audiences and maybe like kids and, and so on? I think it's definitely been a helpful tool for us. I know we've gotten a few child, younger Twitter followers that have really responded to it. Uh, Steve's niece 
has been following it as well and she really thinks they're cool so we've enjoyed doing it and it's been a little bit of a stress reliever for us as well just to have a bit of fun yeah it's just a little less serious than some of the other stuff we're doing and you know some of the stuff we talk about is quite it can be you know quite heavy scientifically so this is just a really really nice and easy it's just yeah fun to play fun to play with i guess um but we've, we've had some really really great feedback from it um including a, a future cruise on the explorer who have said that they're gonna continue doing it so we're influencing people through <laughs> our little legos which is something i never thought i would say in a million years <laughs> never but, but here you go this is 2021 for, <laughs> for you. that's exciting legos and science go hand in hand yeah exactly Matt, you've done also some uh, some videos of your own without Legos, but um, <laughs> with yourself. Um, so you seem very comfortable in front of the camera, and like your videos have been have had a lot of success. It seems. Um, so how come? I don't mean that in a mean way, but I mean like how. Um, how come are you still comfortable with the camera? Do you have background in, in doing videos like that before? Uh, or um? Um, I think my confidence in front of the camera comes from spending a childhood doing musical theatre. Mm -hmm. So singing, performing and prancing about on stage. Um, so I think a lot of the embarrassment that normally fills you up when you, when you stand in front of a camera, I've sort of had some experience in getting over that and, and just presenting and and uh, trying to be clear and concise and that kind of thing. That's so interesting. Uh, what sort of um, musical theatre, like what kind of plays did you do? Oh, uh, all sorts. It started when I was... I um, want to know. <laughs> it started yeah, when I, I was about no 17. Idea. So uh, my mum was a classically trained singer um, and she made sure to instill all sorts of bad habits in all of her kids. <laughs> so uh, we all grew up singing, playing instruments, um, going to see musicals and stuff like that. So it was a big part of our childhood. And when I was about 17, I joined a sort of local youth group who really produced some really quite high quality musicals for the, for the age. And a lot of the people who were my contemporaries in that group are now um, in the West End. So there's, a, you know, it was a, a really successful little group and quite ambitious. And it was very fun to be a part of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a fair amount of experience growing up with these, uh, it was called the Musical Youth Company of Oxford, um, they're great. And then when I went to university, uh, the first society I signed up for was the Musical Society at uni, and yeah, did two, three shows a year with them. Yeah, it sounds like it was quite a passion for you, and, and yet you're here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Everyone asked you to the West End, and you went to the North Atlantic. I know, see what you're missing out on, guys. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's always been a hobby. Um, okay. the, the idea of taking it any more seriously is not for me I, I i love it as a hobby yeah nice i mean i think that definitely shows in that the other night on our shift uh we <laughs> i stayed up to basically to do another whole extra shift with you guys even though you I was did. really tired the next yeah. day and uh, we uh stayed awake so this is the midnight to four four a.m shift and uh, we spent the whole evening rapping away to Hamilton. Yeah, there were some raised eyebrows at my shop when I just, like, <laughs> you knew. went for it. Every, every <laughs> word he knew. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> As you can hear, dear listeners, we are having a lot of fun on the Celtic Explorer with uh, late-night shifts and uh, non-alcoholic gin. 
that's really <laughs> and key. Lots of coffee. Yeah. Yes. Coffee is key. Um, another part of our, another element of our outreach, um, which is also on our website, is our blog series. Have you guys done like science communication writing for general audiences as opposed to um, your kind of scientific contemporaries before? In one of my writing classes in my undergraduate degree, we did have to make a blog and and keep it up for the entire semester. Couldn't tell you what I wrote. That was too <laughs> many years ago. But I do remember having to set up the blog and having to make a schedule almost for the entire semester of what I was going to write about, who my target art audience was, and what the outcome of that blog would be. Yeah, well, you never told me that, so you oh. are going to be getting a lot more pieces to write. <laughs> it was many years ago. <laughs> what about yourself, Matt? Oh, I'm just the cameraman. I don't, <laughs> I don't do any writing. You haven't um, written any books. No, um, I mean, on the whole, I, I find writing a bit of a chore. So um, <laughs> I quite like running around with the camera because it maybe gets me out of doing blog posts. But... Um, <laughs> But, but yeah. I mean, we're using loads of the photos. Yeah, in, in the yeah exactly. Well. So, so I think, you know, yeah, all's well that ends well. Exactly, yeah. you're doing a massive contribution there. I'm so impressed by your blog post, Nick, because I think it's it's almost very poetic uh, in the way you write. Like, you were really taken into the story and into it's like almost like we are on the ship. I mean, it's easier for me because I'm on the ship <laughs> at the moment, but what I mean is that it's like, you know, it's um, really. Yeah, dive, diving in or yeah. well, I, th I think the, the 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 good the sort of the aim of the blog is to bring the reader along, because it is quite an abstract concept to a lot of people. I mean, when I told you know my friends and family that I was going on a cruise, they were like, "Oh, that's so cool! Wow, I'm very jealous you're gonna go away, COVID, blah blah blah." But also, they didn't have a clue what it was gonna involve. To be honest, I didn't really have a clue about what it was gonna involve. So this has also been a nice way of of distilling it to to all audiences as well and it's been interesting trying to get that balance of who our target audience is we want to involve everyone from you know young kids such as steve's niece and, and their class so it's been great we've been doing question and answers sessions but also more scientific readers so i guess my last question on this topic will be have you enjoyed doing outreach uh for the expedition um i i've loved it i think that it's been very nice to be involved in you know the cruise is quite hardcore sciencey and the senior members of the team run around looking quite haunted and stressed out <laughs> with planning and contingency plans and monitoring all of this very expensive equipment and we get to be here and we if we weren't doing the outreach we maybe couldn't get too much involved with running the machines or being responsible because we're early careers researchers. We're not responsible. Exactly, yeah. we're, and we're not <laughs> responsible. So actually having this sort of more creative outlet I think is a very nice way to pass the time on the boat. So I've really loved it. Yeah, I would have to agree with Matt. I think that it is kind of an outlet for us that gives us that little bit of creativity that we may not have been able to have if we were more focused or if we were solely focused on the research itself. Um, but also I've, I've really liked enjoying taking photos and you know on, on Instagram and Twitter we can only put short little bios on it so then Neve will always expand on those and it kind of makes you feel like you're along for the ride as well so I think it's been really great and it's opened us up to meeting a lot of new people online as well too definitely. yeah definitely I mean I think 
I, I certainly really enjoyed the, the, the teamwork element as well. Um, I think we should also mention that Halla is another member of the, the team, but she can't be here, unfortunately, because she's on watch, because um, we're in the final stages of, uh, of um, instrument recovery. Um, but yeah, it's, it, is, it is so nice doing it as a team, because, I mean, obviously, you know, Ben doing this podcast, it's great teamwork, but that kind of, besides the science communication I've done is only really kind of been individual work so this has been really really fun and uh, and like you said yeah it's, it's nice to sort of have have something to do and, and basically play around and also we're you know we've been given complete free range by Steve and and by the rest of the scientific team and and and, and everyone on the Celtic Explorer everyone's been so welcoming and you know we've really been able to to film and record all aspects of the life which um, is great to, to show people and you know hopefully encourage you know future generations of kids to come and study science. Totally, yeah, and we've seen that on Twitter mm, exactly. uh, multiple times. Can you tell us your Twitter handle or social oh, media? Yes. Oh, um, on Twitter, I'm Matt S. Allison. Uh, it's the one full of cartoons of my dog. <laughs> I am on Instagram and Twitter at ETK89. So that's where you can find me or my full name, Erica Therese Kruger, on Facebook. <laughs> Or on the iCrack page as well. Oh yes, on the iCrack page also, <laughs> and on the DCD website. <laughs> Perfect. So on that note, I think that's all the time we have. So I guess we'll be continuing this conversation in two weeks when we return with Matt and Erica and Halle as well for talking a little bit about life at sea on the Celtic Explorer and tell you all the secrets of uh, this mighty ship of the Marine Institute. <laughs> so um, stay tuned and um, see you in the next episode of Hyperagorama at Sea. Bye. Bye. Thanks, y'all.